0: This episode is brought to you by Veep on HBO. The final season of Veep was hailed by critics as sharp and always excellent, as brutally funny as ever, and TV's greatest comedy. For your Emmy consideration in outstanding comedy series and all other categories, visit HBO.com FYC for more on Veep. Chris Bowers is a Juilliard-trained jazz pianist who's been making waves lately. This past Oscar season, he was not only the hands of Dr. Don Shirley in Peter Farrelly's Oscar-winning The Green Book, but he also composed the music and rearranged the pianist's music pieces. Currently for Bowers is Ava DuVarnay's Netflix limited series, When They See Us, about the Central Park Five. He's here with us today on Crew Call to talk about that. So when they when they see us, I watched this over the weekend, and um, uh, I mean, just extremely emotional. I mean, uh, I love Spike Lee. I love his entire canon, but that that's very diff- that's very different. Ava really gets to the heart of injustice, and and and, and a very heart wrenching situation for these for these five young men. What I'm curious about is going from Green Book to something like this, can you tell me about that? What, because I'm watching this, I'm watching um, When They See Us, and I'm thinking to myself, where do you even begin to suggest where to put music? Sure. Because there's some serious emotions in here. What, and Tell me about that, expound, expound on that. Yeah, I mean I
1: think that, um as far as going from Green Book to this, it's interesting that, like, on the outside, as far as stylistically what each of those projects represent, it seems very different. But as far as, like, how I felt and how I approached each of them, it's not that dissimilar. Obviously, like, the tones are very different. But, but um, with Green Book, a lot of the writing for me was, like, inspired by the, the loneliness and the solitude and the sadness that I saw in Don Shirley's life, you know? And a lot of the, especially a lot of the cues that were, like, underscoring any moment that he was in. And so with this film or this series, um, one, when I first watched it, I had the first like interview with her where she was considering hiring me and, um, she wanted me to watch the first episode and then come back and talk to her afterwards. And I, um, I was emotional after watching it the first time. And I, um, I was talking to her about like how much it, I just felt myself in it, how much I felt like, um, uh you know, I, I, I actually was arrested for protesting, um, like maybe, maybe like eight years ago now, and I, it was after Darren Wilson was acquitted, and I happened to actually just go with my friend, a uh, friend of mine, he was like, well, let's go down to the protest and see what it is, and we ended up getting like corralled in this intersection, and, and he, we got split up, and he ended up getting out, and I ended up getting arrested, and it was this whole like 24 hour period, and, that whole experience I just felt incredibly lucky that like, that one, I was getting a field trip to jail because I was getting arrested with a bunch of other protesters who were like lawyers and creatives and other people like that, but um, it also allowed me to like see the inside of something that that had the circumstances been slightly different, it would have just been like a nightmare to be a part of or to be in, and uh, and it was already very like scary and sad to be in that space. Even though I was in it for like such a light reason, and so I think watching the show, I just felt all those things. I felt like being a kid and the fears that my parents had of like something like this happening to me, and then being in a situation where I was actually arrested and how easily that could have, if somebody wanted to, turned into something else if they had decided that like. I looked like somebody that maybe committed a, a more heinous crime or something like that, and um, and so the first instinct I have was to approach it like a horror film, like a horror story, just because it felt like so scary to me, uh, especially the first couple of episodes. And that was like at least the initial conversation I had with her that that night was just that I I wanted to try to figure out how to like represent the the fear and the pain, but also at the same time like the innocence and how to how to do that the loss of innocence the the maintaining of
0: innocence and and all of that. I was talking with another composer about um, he had said something along the lines of making the music in a dramatic situation music is, is, is much like the actors. You want it, especially in drama, you want it to be nuanced. You don't want it to be melodramatic because if you play it hard sometimes it could ratchet up the melodrama, hence the need of soft of soft strings, soft piano was that your feeling in this? There's a beautiful moment what a, what one of the beautiful moments at the end of episode a sad moment uh at the end of episode toward the end of episode one is when um he says I lied on you I lied on you, mm-hmm. lied on you. Mm-hmm. and um just how you bring the piano in there it's just perfect
1: uh yeah, I appreciate that, um yeah, especially because like that was there were a lot of there was a lot of temp in it in the in the initial um uh, iterations of the show um, but one either the temp a lot of the times was a completely the wrong sound and sometimes there wasn't temp. like that scene was a scene where there wasn't any temp at all and actually I don't even know if she was planning on scoring it I just felt like there should be something in that moment uh, me and the music editor and so um, it really was like a lot for me it's just uh, it's first based in improvisation actually because um, I was again just reacting to what I was watching and just um, trying to, similar to what you're saying about composers being an actor, I'm trying to like evoke a feeling. I'm trying to make sure that the music I'm writing is like helping serve a feeling just like an actor sees words and then tries to deliver them in a certain way. And so um, my process is like, especially with this project, was just watching it over and over again and then starting to like improvise to it, but improvise in a way that like the music that i was playing to try to get that music to get me to feel the same things that the image was making me feel and that like if i could then write something that that i could step away from and then come back to and listen to and still feel those same feelings then i felt like i achieved my job and so with all of this it was like these scenes made me emotional and made me cry made me feel things by themselves without any music and so like I was just relying on my natural instincts to try to add just enough and like be restrained and and it was definitely a big part of my thoughtfulness with the process but I guess it wasn't um, something that I was like worried about because I just was kind of just reacting
0: <laughs> So how pianos your fur is is yeah. your primary instrument mm-hmm. Tell me about how you decided what else what other instruments you would work in and how big was your orchestration was it a small chamber or was it were you working with 30
1: no yes it was pretty small and the first uh idea i had was again from that first meeting i wanted to try to figure out how to take like organic instruments and and like break them essentially and manipulate them especially again to like try to represent what was happening to these boys and so the first thing i did was actually record um cello saxophone trumpet and and violin but i had them play like just sounds, just all kinds of weird sounds, um, and also uh, drum, bucket drums, because we talked about the idea that that was one of the biggest sounds in New York at the time, is like bucket drumming on the street and stuff like that. It was like kind of the beginning of all of that, and we try to figure out how to like use even with bucket drumming recorded, bucket drumming with sticks, bucket drumming with malice, bucket drums when like the bucket is full of water, when it's full of rocks, or when it's like a. a, a a tin trash can instead of a plastic one and all that kind of stuff. And so I really just, like, amassed all these sounds. And, again, with this, the cello and the sax and the trumpet, I had them play, like, just weird, scary things. Like, one other reference I had in my mind was, like, Hereditary. Like, the score for that, all the saxophone stuff, just he created, Colin and created, like, this world just with, like, the saxophone. And I felt like we should be more creative with, like, making pads out of, like, saxophone tones that have been stretched out and like detuned and then run through a synth and then now I'm playing that instead of like a regular synth or like or again taking these like cello things and like detuning them or even a lot of the piano parts the piano is run through a filter that's been detuned and stuff like that and so a lot of the initial idea was, was driven by this, this concept of, um, of, of breaking instruments and like making them sound as like dark and twisted as possible.
0: So I had wrote, wrote down some moments that you know that that spoke to me, like for example, in in episode two, there's a great, you know when they're talking about the plea deal, there's a great there's a great keyboard going. Mm. And then and then in the verdict, well, and then and then um, there's strings rising when with, um, with soft strings rising when they talk about the evidence, yeah, how it looks like the evidence is going to go their way, yeah, yeah, and the DNA, and then of course when things when things go off the rails, everything is everything's loud, yeah. Um, tell uh, tell me about tell me about all this because this is quite a journey. This is quite because it's like we we think things are going to go well for them and then things go things go sideways.
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- you know I think that was one of the tough things about that episode is trying to like. Make it feel that way, like make some sort of lightness out of such a dark situation, such a dark story, and something that we already know actually is going to turn out negative, and still make people hope for positive. And I remember seeing the um, the premiere in New York, and I felt like one of the things that made me feel like we had achieved that was that when that verdict is read out, there are people that are like screaming no, and like like we're stunned by that that thing, even though again we know that that's what happens to them, and so. A lot of that episode was trying to figure out ways to like continue like to build that tension and build on these these themes and ideas so that like and and, and like you said accentuating any sort of positivity we could out of out of such like a dark um, scene that that um, you know by the end we're like hoping you know for for something and then that last cue is kind of like the big centerpiece that that last cue is like one of the main ones we focused on in that episode before we went back and scored the rest of it just because. Um, that was like such an important thing that we wanted to make sure that when that verdict was read that it feels like the
0: you know the bottom is taken out of it, of everything what else spoke to you as when can can you share with us one or two moments that really that that spoke that that really rocked you when you were when you were improvising
1: yeah um definitely that that end of of episode two is one of the biggest ones also the scene in episode four where um where Nisi Nash's character, Corey's mom, is talking to um, Marcy or, or Norman, um, Corey's brother, um, and that whole scene was like that's another scene that, as I was writing it, actually a few times I would like break down and cry watching it just because it felt like, um, you know, I my my I'm so fortunate to have the parents that I have and like in the situation that I have, but but um, I definitely could see how how you could have a mother or a father that would have that sort of response to that and how you could have um that sort of like fight play out and it felt like not too distant from um from something that like my family would experience, you know? Um and and my my brother is also gay and, and that's something that like the difficulties that my family had kind of moving through that is something that like I was thinking a lot about in, in writing that whole scene and the idea of like them possibly not accepting him or or casting him aside because of that and all that kind of stuff and so that was another scene that that uh was pretty emotional to work on
0: did you share some of these stories with ava when you first met with her because it, it brings you, you you bring a lot to the you bring a lot to the project personally yeah
1: i think that like i i it's i wasn't expecting to to share that much or to even like react that way when i first saw it to be honest like I, when I watched it, I was I was stunned and angry and all those things, but I didn't start crying until I started talking to her about it because I think then it was like like oh wow like these are all the reasons why this hit so so home for me and like why it, it um would mean so much. So yeah, I definitely expressed to her like the story about me being arrested or the idea of, like my parents and their fears of me as a uh, you know as a kid and like whether or not I would fall into the wrong wrong uh, thing or whatever it was. So yeah, I think those are maybe some of the things that. Helped her understand
0: and trust that I would be able to, like, you know, give the story my all. This episode is brought to you by Veep on HBO. The final season of Veep was hailed by critics as sharp and always excellent, as brutally funny as ever, and TV's greatest comedy. For your Emmy consideration in outstanding comedy series and all other categories, visit HBO.com FYC for more on Veep. Tell us about tell us about your journey. You grew up out here. Yeah. You went yeah. to Juilliard. Yes. And you came back. Yeah. But uh uh where where'd you go to where did you go to high school? Wh- what did you what were some of your uh your early you know, did you I gotta imagine you played jazz yeah. from a very early
1: age. Yeah. Yeah, so I I started um my parents decided before I was born they wanted me to play piano. I think uh they just wanted to um one, make sure I had something to do, but they had a really weird specific thing with piano. Like they used to find piano CDs and play them for me when I was in my mom's stomach. And so they um, they put me in lessons when I was pretty early. When I was four or five, I did like Suzuki-style lessons, but around nine, I started private lessons, and they did a really incredible job of, um, of seeing that I was losing interest in classical music at that time, but then not wanting me to like give up on piano. And so they tried jazz as maybe something that would like help keep my interest up. And they were also smartly, um, diligent about me keeping my classical lessons at the same time. They didn't want me to abandon that either because they, I guess, understood at that point the importance of the technique and all of that. And so, um, but I think jazz is what really made me fall in love with the piano, fall in love with music because it gave me the ability to improvise or it gave me the ability to hear something on the radio and learn how to play it and like all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I went to Juilliard um, uh, when I was 17 for my undergrad and I stayed for my master's and before I finished my master's, I ended up um, winning the Thelonious Monk piano competition. And so I think that's kind of what really helped then like launch a bit of a touring career. And um, and I had always actually, my parents were really big on me having plans and ideas of like what I was gonna do with my life. And, and they really wanted me to even before high school almost decide what I was gonna do with my life. And um, so bef- like before I was even in high school, or like as a freshman in high school, I kind of had told them that I wanted to get into film scoring at some point because it was something that I had already understood as as even going back to juilliard yeah yeah i mean even before then when i was in, like in high school my dad was a writer for film and tv and so we watched all kinds of movies and he we talked about movies and all that and and being a musician i just saw my place in those stories as as uh, as how i saw how important the music was in each of these things and how i could listen to the score to something after seeing a movie and still feel all the same things and so um i told them when i was in high school i want to go to uh, some sort of conservatory for college, and I wanted to then tour with uh, an artist that I idolized, and then tour with my own band, and then transition into film scoring after that. And I just kind of kept telling everybody until like people gave me opportunities to try to help make that happen.
0: What were some of your favorite film scores growing up?
1: Growing up, uh, I mean, obviously hands down all the John Williams films that like shaped. My childhood, like E.T., Home Alone, Jurassic Park, and all the things that my dad loved, like um, uh, Indiana Jones and Star Wars and all that. But um, John Powell also had a really big influence on me. I think the way that he used electronics and and sense in his scores, especially like the Born Identity stuff, that like I, um, it just felt. It reminded me of like hip hop music, or reminded me of like some of the other things that I was into outside of like score traditional score music. Um, Howard Shore also was another huge one for me. Obviously, we like Lord of the Rings, but I think um, his score for The Departed is something I listen to a lot. It's just like something else that was a little different. I started to like pretty quickly get into um, uh, the things that were I think a little bit left of center. You know, like in addition to John Williams and Bernard Herrmann and all that stuff that really influenced me, but also like finding the things that that almost felt like they were people that came from a different background, which a lot of them did. And I think that's just because like I knew I was coming from like, you know, not studying orchestration and, and all that for like years and years and years. I was more so coming from this performance background. Yeah.
0: So so how did I gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about two well let's let's talk about Aretha Franklin first mm-hmm. and the difference that she made in your life sure. And the takeaway, and everything.
1: Yeah. Uh, So I met her at the Monk Competition, and so she was getting some sort of lifetime achievement type award that they give out every year uh, when the competition happens. And um, at the semifinals, after I finished playing, somebody was like, oh, do you want to meet somebody? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. And and I was still nervous because I don't know if I'm going to get to the next level and all that kind of stuff. And uh, as we're walking to the front, they're like, oh, by the way, it's Aretha Franklin that you're about to meet. and I haven't really been speechless, like meeting very many people at all. And that was a period where I was like stumbling over myself. I don't even remember what I said, but I know it didn't really make any sense what it was I said to her. Um, But she asked for my information and she told me that I was her favorite to win, the whole thing. And she was like, I wish you luck. And, um, And then I luckily ended up going on to win it. And I actually don't even know if I really talked to her that night that I won, but I remember obviously people talking about her picking me and all that kind of stuff. But um, I just thought it was gonna be like a one-time thing. And then about a week later, I randomly got a call from a number I didn't know. And I answered the phone and this woman was like, oh, so what did you think of the competition? And I was like, who is, I? in my mind, I was like, who is this person? And I was like, yeah, it was fine, I guess, yeah, I had a good time. And and she was like, oh, so do you think you'll, like, I know you get a, a contract with Concord Records from this, like, you know, are you are going to go pursue that? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And again, I'm just like, who is this? And then she was like, well, I mean, you know, if you, if that doesn't work out, I'm thinking about starting a label, so you might want to come over and do something for Aretha Records. And I was like, oh, and, like, freaked out, <laughs> like, I was like, dropped the phone. Um, and, um... And then, yeah, we proceeded to like develop this relationship. She actually, my very first manager is this woman named Tracy Tracy Jordan who was um, her publicist. And I was talking to her about like trying to get started and she was like, I think you need to find a manager. And so she recommended Tracy and then she started having me play for like her birthday parties and her Christmas party and like all these different things. And then, um, and became somebody I could like call on for, for advice and um, yeah, asked me for like to open for her and for things. And yeah, it just became like a really crazy surreal relationship.
0: Did she ever did any big wisdom that she imparted on anything?
1: You know like not specifically. I think like kind of seeing how she operated I think was like the biggest lesson if anything, like um and and to be honest like some of the things that that I could see were were out of frustration or fear or like whatever it was with her own issues with the industry. You know, I think that like um you know, she was notorious for wanting to be paid in cash after shows and things like that, and like, and how she did business was like very, very tough, you know, and, and anytime that I had to negotiate with her or like her people a deal or like something like that, it was um, just fascinating to see how she, how she could balance that type of, um, of business-minded mentality with still being an incredibly like generous and sweet person to me, I think was like something that I always found
0: inspiring. And you were, I, I, you, you were close up until her passing. Yeah,
1: I mean, like I don't. The last time I saw her before she passed was at the the, the um the International Jazz Day concert that we played at the White House, and and that was the, the only time that my dad got to meet her. Actually, my my family never got to meet her, and I knew her for, I guess at that point w- it was maybe, um like five years or so that I I'd, I'd known her, and my parents had never met them. I met her, and um my dad after the concert finally got to meet her and it was um it was a pretty awkward moment actually she was like leaving the the space and surrounded by security and i was like oh miss franklin do you mind if my like my dad's here can i please like introduce you and she said yeah sure and so like she stopped, and my dad was like, "Miss Frank it's so it's so nice to meet you. You're like you're like an auntie to my son now, and all this stuff. Can I please give you a hug?" And she just like stood there and stared at him, and my dad proceeded to like hug her as she just like stared at him, like "What are you doing right now?" Um, but I know that for him, that was like the best hug that he's, he's ever had. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, I think that was the last time that I had seen her or talked to her, unfortunately, before she passed. Yeah.
0: So my other question is, how film composing found you? Yeah. Um, what was what was one of your first big gigs? Tell us about that. I know you went to the Sundance Lab. Yeah, and then out of that was um, was was uh, Monsters and Men. Actually, that
1: didn't even come from the Sundance Lab. That came from um, the producers on Dear White People uh, okay. were also producers on on Monsters and Men. But one of the the very first thing I got again was from um, this woman Tracy Jordan. That was my manager for a while from Aretha. She started to just tell people that I wanted to be a film scorer and she knew a director that was directing a documentary about Elaine Stritch and so that was like my very first project ever was uh, was scoring that one and um, and then I did another documentary for that same director and didn't really do anything for a little while until um, a friend of mine that I knew from like a high school jazz all-star band uh, who actually I just had breakfast with this morning, he was producing this documentary about Kobe Bryant and so he asked me for Showtime and he asked me if I would... Come on board, and I kind of assumed that it was like just a bunch of kids following Kobe trying to get him to answer questions. And then it turned out it was actually like them working very intimately with Kobe to to develop this project. And um, so I came on to that and started working on that. And that is really what like snowballed into all these other things. Like that music is, I only submitted that music for the Sundance Labs, which I ended up getting into. And I ended up doing, um, I think about like four other documentaries for Showtime around the same type of. Thing because of that that film, and I still do work with Kobe Bryant because of that, and so that, that really um, I think started to give me uh, an outlet to be able to like build some sort of resume and build some sort of like you know um, reel that I could share with people and all that. Yeah,
0: and then coming to Green Book, yeah, tell me tell me about that. Like, I know you probably talked about this throughout awards season, but which was first? Was it the piano playing or was it the film composing? Or was it both?
1: Yeah, it was both. So they, they came to me and um, and asked me about doing both from the very beginning. I think that they were probably most excited about me because of the piano part. And I think that it was probably a, um, I mean, I would assume just them being like, well, he can, hopefully he can handle the scoring part, but we need somebody to do this piano stuff. And uh, and I'm just, yeah, very f- glad and fortunate that like, Though I feel like it's one of those projects that like somehow the universe like perfectly crafted for me because like, I think that had I not had the skill set that they needed to be able to accomplish all these things then like, you know, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. And so um yeah, it was definitely both when they first approached me. Yeah.
0: And then I was telling you before the podcast, one of the things that blows my mind out of everything is that and I remember you talking about this at Deadlines New York Contenders was that you that n- when when you were working on the music for the film, mm-hmm. none of Do- Dr. Shirley's music had been written down yeah and you had to do that yeah. you had to re you had to arrange everything yeah transcribe can you tell it. me about just that's wild <laughs> and how like how many pieces just tell me about that whole experience yeah so i think
1: i can't remember now but i think we did about five or six pieces and um it The first thing we did was go through his whole cataloger as much of it it as we could to decide which pieces we wanted to showcase and each of those was chosen for a different reason. Um, And I I chose those things. Without thinking about having to learn them, actually, which was a pretty funny thing because I chose all these pieces where I was like, oh, we should definitely do Lullaby Burland because he does these like two handed fugue things that are like really impressive and incredible. And then we should do Blue Skies because it opens with this crazy intro. And then like I chose the songs and I was like, oh, I have to learn these things. (laughs) And um, but it it really just took me back to like being in college in high school because like when I was in high school, I went to an arts high school out here called Loxa, And um, by my senior year, I had made it so that my day was literally the way that the school works. is Your first half of your day is is academics, and the second half of day is is arts. And um, uh, you have three periods in the morning that are academic classes. But I had finished enough requirements by my senior year, and I knew I wanted to go to a conservatory. That I didn't even care about getting anything extracurricular to get into a a, a, a regular college. That um, I arranged it so that my I had a class in the morning, and then I had. Two back-to-back pl- practice periods, and then lunch, and then arts classes, and then I would go home and practice. And most of that time was just transcribing things. I was just like listening to things and transcribing people like Herbie Hancock, Brad Meldow, like Keith Jarrett, um, Marcus Roberts, Kenny Kirkland, all this stuff. And so, so this is second nature. Yeah, this yeah. is this is. It was like it was like going back to school. I hadn't really done it since then, but I, but it was it was. It reminded me of school. It was me at a piano, like listening to like three seconds, playing it over and over again, and like trying to get his phrasing, and then like then six seconds, and then nine seconds, and just like doing that. And because I didn't have very much time, I was back to like practicing literally like seven to ten
0: hours every single day of the Don Shirley music. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, we always close out each interview with um, advice that you would give um, to to those coming up, uh, young musicians that want to be film composers. Yeah.
1: You know, it's funny. I was, like, just thinking about this yesterday. I feel like my advice always changes, probably, depending on, like, wherever I'm in and, like, what the things that I'm dealing with. But I feel like the thing that that I would say now is to to be kind to yourself throughout this whole process. Just because, like, it's such a... um, Trying to grow as an artist is so difficult because, you know, you're constantly... Putting yourself in a vulnerable position to like create and then exposing that vulnerability to the world or to your collaborators or to your bosses or whomever and hoping they like it and it's really difficult sometimes to separate their responses and the reactions from like maybe um, from from yourself you know I think that a lot of times it's easy to like have somebody tell you your music's bad and then feel like you as a person are bad or like all those kinds of things and um, and it just makes it difficult to um to not doubt yourself when you have all these different uh obstacles and and things to try to like get over as a as a musician as an artist as a composer and so i think that the biggest thing you can do is as you're continuing to like work on on your craft and all of that just to be kind to yourself because nobody else really is going to be if you're not to yourself yeah
0: excellent thank you yeah definitely thank
1: you. <laughs> thanks so much yeah my thank pleasure. you That was great